Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Dr. Jessica Young, the recent past TIPQC Maternal Medical Director and an Associate Professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and the Director of Firefly, which is a substance use treatment program for pregnant and postpartum people at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And today we have a very special guest with us, Elizabeth Hart. Elizabeth is the Director of the Office of Faith-Based and Community Engagement for the Tennessee Department of Health, leading all outreach activities, including the Health Disparities Task Force. Elizabeth received her BA in Communications from Alabama A&M University and her MS in Communications from Middle Tennessee State University. Elizabeth has led public education campaigns to increase breastfeeding, immunizations, prenatal care, proper sleeping positions for infants, and workplace health initiatives to disseminate information about health threats. Elizabeth received national recognition for her use of social media in public health from the National Association of City and County Health Officials, the National Public Health Information Coalition, and the annual Government Social Media Conference, with three campaigns being nominated for Emmy Awards. And most interesting for us today, Elizabeth, during 2017 to 2020, traveled the state listening to the stories of Tennesseans impacted by substance use disorder. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. Yes, I have had a a very active career (laughs) here in the state of Tennessee, and it is my pleasure to, to join you this today. Let's start out by talking a little bit about how you got involved in public health. Yes, so I am originally from Indianapolis, Indiana. If you have not noticed, I do not have the Southern accent, even though I've lived in this wonderful state for 11 years, I have yet to pick up the accent. I started actually in medical at the Indiana University School of Medicine. So I worked in the medical side and communications and then Hurricane Katrina happened. And that was when I was first introduced to public health. We had a multitude of individuals from the New Orleans area that were relocated to Indianapolis. And that's what I said. That's what I want to do. I want to help those people. And I have not turned back since that time. I've been working in public health for since then. And so I've worked in, in Indianapolis at the State Department of Health there and then worked at the Shelby County Health Department in Memphis, Tennessee. And now, as you mentioned, I'm the director of the Office of Faith-Based and Community Engagement at the Tennessee Department of Health. Communication is such a key part of of health, of, of public health, of, of medicine. How, what do you think of the role of communications is in healthcare? Oh, it's incredibly important. And, and I think that many across not only our state, but across the country and really across the globe have started to finally recognize how important communications is 
And unfortunately, it took a pandemic for that to happen. And there was always an, an, an impact of communications prior to the pandemic. And, and we were always kind of that, that afterthought, right? Okay, we, we developed some materials. Now we need to make sure that we're communicating that to the community. Now, because of the pandemic, our eyes and everyone's eyes have now been opened even wider. And so now communications is at the forefront. It's at the table when an idea is first coming, to brewing, right? You're, you're starting to think of the concept and how you want to develop this program. Well, first you need to bring communications, but not only communications, it's important to bring community partners to the table. And that's where I am in my role now. And so even though the vast majority of my career was spent in communications, I'm now in that leveraging between that, that balance between leveraging and communications, but also ensuring that the communications comes from community members and our community partners. So, you know, I cannot emphasize how important social media has played and, and all the, the various platforms that have, that have come to fruition in the last several years, but also the role of marketing and making sure that we've got plenty of materials out there for all populations in their native tongue. The one of the biggest health threats to the state of Tennessee, and I would say the nation as a whole, is opioid use disorder and the impact of overdose and the other downstream effects of a substance use disorder on our health system, on our communities, on individuals throughout the state and in the country. How did you end up traveling the state to hear the stories of, of people directly affected by opioid use disorder? Well, you know, it was an interesting journey and it was a journey that truly changed my life. So as I mentioned, I've worked in public health for a very long time in communications and Dr. Dreisner, who was a former state health commissioner, he came into my office one day and, and if you knew Dr. Dreisner, he stood, I think, almost seven feet tall. He was a tall guy and I'm, I'm barely five, five. Right. And so we always had this kind of interesting camaraderie between the two of us. But he would come to my office one day and he said, I, I need you to, to work on a campaign. And I said, sure, Dr. D, what, what do you need? And he told me about this idea that he had about how to make sure that we were you know, showing the data, but showing the people behind it. And so I, I had to think through this idea and this concept and budget and what that would take. And so then birthed the Faces of Opioids, it's called the Tennessee Face of Opioids campaign. And that was in 2018 that he and I had that conversation. We did all the paperwork and, and, the, and wrote the, the grant to the CDC. And let me tell you, initially, I was a little bit hesitant as an African-American woman and knowing what the conversations are being held in my community about drugs and about misuse and substance misuse and addiction. And, and I knew conversations that were being had in my own circles, in my own family. And so I had a little bit of hesitancy. I'm not going to lie about that. And I had to do some soul searching and to do some research myself in order to not only put together this campaign, but really kind of dive into what is truly the issue happening with substance misuse. And so, yes, as Dr. D said, we had all of the data, right? We know that unfortunately, Tennessee has been 
hugely impacted by the opioid crisis. But the behind every data point, because in public health, there's data for everything. Behind every data point is a person. It is a human. It is a mother. It is a father. It is a son. It is a daughter. It is a physician. It is a faith leader. It is a community leader. These are actual people. And what we needed to do is to tell their stories from their perspective. So what we did was we decided to do this, launch this campaign. Initially, I thought, well, maybe we'll do, you know, a couple from each grand division. When, of course, there's three grand divisions in the state. There's the West, the Middle, and the East. And I thought, well, no, how do we pick and choose? So ultimately, we decided to make sure that stories were told from all 95 counties in the state. And what would that image look like? What would that picture look like? Who are these people and what are their stories? And I can tell you, there's the journey of the campaign brought about laughter. It brought about tears from my eyes, gave me a deep pit in my stomach, and it pained me to hear some of the horrific stories. I heard from individuals who are grandparents who had retired and were living the wonderful retirement life, but whose child fell into a situation where they started misusing some substances. And their children then, instead of having them go into a foster care situ situation or system or live with other folks, the grandparents decided to come out of retirement and now start raising their, their grandchildren. Well, raising their grandchildren meant They've also got to provide for food and school. Well, you know, a retirement budget is not exactly the same budget, you know, when you're a working adult. And so going through that journey of learning how these individuals who are well into retirement then had to go back into the work, the workforce to then earn money to support their grandchildren. But by allowing them to stay in the family, that when their particular child was doing better, that they still had that access to their children. I talked to individuals who had been clean for 30 years, who talked about how they still do their steps because sometimes, even after 30 years of sobriety, some things might get triggered. And the importance of having that community and having that network. I met individuals who had a life of abuse and that's what drove them to utilize substance, to misuse substances. I met some individuals who had hip surgeries and tooth surgeries and all kinds of other medical mishaps or accidents or injuries where they were prescribed pain medicine that then fell into substance misuse. And one of the things that I, I love telling about this campaign, which you mentioned in, my, in the opening and in, in, in my bio, that I had three campaigns that were nominated for Emmys, for Emmys. One of those campaigns was this one. And I am proud to say that we were nominated for an Emmy for this campaign because it really did tell the stories. But every story was different. There were some stories I went to folks' homes as a government worker, they are homes that I know I would never be able to afford on my salary. 
I have been to churches. I have been to the emergency room. I have been to court to see an individual who thought they were going to be free. And then because of a situation, they unfortunately tested positive. Then they were unfortunately continued to be held in, in custody. I have seen grandparents crying. I've seen parents crying from mourning the loss of their loved one. It took me on a journey and I learned that there's so many different facets to this crisis. And if we forget these people, then we're not doing them justice. We have to continue doing this work, continue telling these stories, continue to reduce the stigma, having these conversations and helping our family and loved ones get that help that we know is out there now. What stories were the most impactful for you to hear? So there was one individual who, there were many, let me, let me not just say one, there were, there were many stories that I think about. In fact, before I tell you this one story, I will say that I even became friends, genuine friendships out of the people that I met. Folks, I probably would never have met on any given day, even though I'm out in the community, right? Because we got to know one another intimately, telling those stories, hearing about their livelihoods and the journeys that they have been on. But there's one, one story that always resonates with me and, and she literally changed my life in her story. So before I went to, to talk with her, there was a, we always had a conversation on the telephone so I could introduce myself, you know, tell me exactly what we were doing with this campaign, even though they had applied to be, to be part of it or someone within the community suggested them as a, as a story. And on the telephone prior to us meeting, there were some things that were said that I recognize she's from a very, very rural part of the state. And so there were some things that I, I was a little bit anxious about, just some, some type of terminology that was said that I realized, okay, we're going to do some education here. Just some, again, some, some words that as a black woman, I was a little bit uncomfortable with, but that was more so about having a conversation, right? About where she is from and her state and her in her community that she did not understand that certain terminology was not was no longer being used. And but let me be also make it very clear it was not anything that was very negative. It was just a, a different type of terminology. So before meeting with her, I had so much anxiety. I pulled up to her home and I, I had butterflies in my stomach. And when I got to her home, we went out to the back part of her house and sat outside. And all of that anxiety that I felt, that I thought that I felt prior to that meeting, immediately just disappeared because she opened up her heart. She opened up her spirit to tell me about her decades long abuse that she had suffered. And that abuse is what led her to using drugs. 
And when I met her, she had just passed one year of sobriety. And her story with so many intimate details put a true face to the crisis. She didn't want to start using or misusing substances. She did not want a life of being in and out of custody and jail. She did not want a life of constantly overdosing and having that mentality that, oh, I'll be fine. Oh, I'll be fine. Oh, I'll be fine. Because the last time she told me that she OD'd before she got clean, they said, you don't have another one in you. And her telling her story and being so comfortable with telling me details, some of which were not shared in her story on our website, so I'm not going to share them here. They touched me in a way that I had, remember all that anxiety pulling up to her home. I was crying <laughs> like a little baby. You know that kind of cry where your, your stomach starts hurting, right? And you just can't stop crying because I felt, I felt her emotion. I felt her story. And even though I've never lived in her shoes, right? I felt that. And from that moment on, I knew that that story changed my life, changed my perspective, and really truly gave me the inspiration to keep going, to keep going with this campaign, to travel to all the different 95 counties. She allowed me into her home and as I took her photo, after telling her the story, she gave me a hug and told me I was the first Black person to ever come to her home. And for me, of course, the waterworks happened again, right? Here come all the tears yet again, because I felt honored. I felt honored in that moment that she felt comfortable. So I here I was, I was having some angst, some anxiety, but that she felt comfortable enough to allow me into her space. And if, if we all could do that with folks that are our neighbors, our church members, our you know fellow gym folks, right? We go to the gym. If we could do that with everyone, imagine how much good we could do in this state. But she, that story is one I will always remember. She is very near and dear to my heart because she changed my entire life. It, it's amazing how powerful stories can be and sharing, hearing an, an individual tell their truth and, and their journey is just incredible. And, you know, I, I feel as a physician, I often feel very privileged to sit in a room with someone as they they tell me their their journey, what brought them to, to the place where they are with needing help with, with substance use disorder and how people come from so many different backgrounds, socioeconomic, race, ethnicity, immigrant, rural, urban, you know, cross addiction knows no boundaries. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you say that, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I no. wanted to, to jump in because you, you said something that really resonated with the campaign. And there's one, there's another story of an individual who's African-American woman 
And part of her story was she was the daughter of a, of a mom who had an addiction. And part of her story was about how as we, and I say we as a, as a, as a member of the Black community, we don't talk about it enough. But you as a physician know, I as a public health professional know, the data shows there's certainly a problem in both Black and white communities, but it's not talked about openly. And I can tell you, as someone, again, as a, as a member of the Black community, I know it's not talked about enough. And she brought it up in her story about she, how she tries to make sure that her mother's legacy lives on. Her mother succumbed not to the addiction, but from the years of, of abuse that her body took from the addiction. She eventually succumbed to that. But she wants to keep her mother's legacy alive, especially in the Black community, to try to reduce that stigma because it's not talked about. So I wanted to just kind of bring that up since you did mention that. Yeah, absolutely. The And I think I think that's a good segue to talk about stigma. How, how does stigma factor into the stories that you heard? Oh, absolutely. It, it, it 100% factored into it. As I mentioned a minute ago, I became friends with several folks very good friends, actually. We wish each other happy birthdays and happy anniversaries and new homes and new jobs and congratulations. And these are individuals that I, again, we come from two different walks of life, right? And I recognize that I had my own bias, I think, right? I had my own stigma. These are individuals who are felons, who are you know former felons, but they are you know they they have lived that life, and it broadened my horizon. It broadened my ability to see that person, right, that human. And if, if we could reduce the stigma and openly talk about it, openly open our arms to everyone, I think that would help. I think it also would help as we talk about reducing the stigma with getting mental health help with seeking out therapy, seeking out a professional. That is important as well. We need more individuals to tell their stories, to say, you know what? I was down and out. So that woman that I just mentioned a minute ago that changed my life, for her to tell her story, right? Someone else can see themselves in that story or their loved one. Or perhaps the young woman that I just mentioned whose mom was an, an addict and then eventually succumbed to that, you know, there are other folks in the Black community that say, you know what? I have an uncle, or I have a mother, or I have a grandmother who's been down that same journey. Let's talk about it. Let's be open about it. Let's be comfortable with the conversation. That is the importance and the, 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 I don't know how, how else to say the importance of storytelling, as you just said. I mean, because that is really how we get comfortable with having that conversation about everything from not just substance misuse, but to diabetes, to, we talked about mental health just now, all kinds of other illnesses and ailments. We have to reduce the stigma by having the conversations because no, no longer are there six degrees of separation, Right. There's usually like a half a half a person degree of separation, right? So you know someone or you know someone of someone. The more we are open, the more we are public about it, the more we are actively trying to learn, educate ourselves, that helps to reduce the stigma. 
I started this, you know, this, this session with you and talking about this conversation with how I had to do my own research. I had to, even though I have worked in public health a very long time, had to recognize my own ignorance. And that's okay. It's okay for us to acknowledge, you know what? I don't know enough about this. Let me read about it. Let me learn about it. And let me talk to folks who have walked that path to help me understand it. That's how we reduce stigma. And I think that reducing stigma has huge downstream consequences. It affects how we allocate resources. It affects how as governments and what we demand from our legislative officials, it affects the a judicial system it affects you know there's the education system like there's so many areas that stigma touches and that if we improve or get rid of eliminate stigma that's gonna have massive effects in other places it absolutely, well. it absolutely will and as i mentioned a minute ago about the data a lot of times we look at the numbers and don't get me wrong, the numbers are incredibly important. It helps us to see where are there are parts in the state, where are there are parts in the country that we need to concentrate more or less, depending on what kind of resources they have. But behind that data point is a person. And if it means hearing that individual story that could change someone else's life, as you mentioned, change legislation, policy, whatever, from funding on down, we've got to continue telling those stories and help those individuals who have been down that path become comfortable with telling that story. But then the folks who have never been part of that path, never have, have, have misused any, any substances or may not have had any addiction in their life, we need those of us to open our ears and open our hearts to listen to these stories and to amplify them to an even broader audience. And that was what the purpose of that campaign was. We gathered these individuals, we had a launch in Nashville for it, and then it just, it took off like wildfire and multiple different stories from small outlets, media outlets across the state, picked it up, it got picked up nationally by a couple of outlets. Here we are now, post-pandemic, can I say that? We're on the other side of the pandemic. And even though I have been removed from communications for about two and a half years now, and from my previous position at the Department of Health, I still get emails. I just received an email just last week from a reporter who went on the website and saw my information. People are still going to that website, which is tnfacesofopioids.com. I should have mentioned that previously. It's tnfacesofopioids.com. Feel free to go out there and read these incredible stories from all 95 counties, this work must continue, whether it's through the Face of Opioids campaign or others, these stories deserve to be told, should be told. We, with, in TIPQC, we had a opioid use disorder in pregnancy and opioid exposed newborn statewide project. And one of the things that we did for each of our learning sessions would start them with a, a patient telling their story 
or a parent of a, of a patient telling their story. And the themes that often came up in those stories were how difficult it was to access care, how stigma made it hard for them to access care, and also how bias impacted their experiences in hospitals or interacting with, with the healthcare system. Were there takeaways or overarching themes that you got from the stories that, that you heard? Yes. Yeah, so you just touched on it. There were individuals, there were, there were multiple individuals that had those, those same themes about not having access when they wanted the help not having enough NA or AA, so depending on the addiction available in their community, the, the huge stigma, several individuals, more than several actually, talked about how they were ostracized from their faith community when they were initially, you know, going down that path. Now, that was many, that was years ago for some, some it was more recent. And so, so faith leaders are now having to wrap their arms around these individuals within their community. So there were some themes there. There were some themes that they felt that they were the lowest of low. And there were, there were many folks that talked about how suicide was the only option that they thought about at the time because of how they were being treated or mistreated, kind of thrown out by their families. How they did not have the resources immediately and that how many of them had to hit rock bottom before they could get help. When they said, when they were telling me their stories, they, they were, there were a couple that I can think of who, who said they were almost like levels to their addiction before they hit rock bottom, where they, um, they, they, they went back and thought through and thought, well, I was, I was waving the flag. I was waving the flag for someone to help me and no one saw me waving my flag. And so there was that, hey, why did, weren't there resources at that level? Why did I have to hit rock bottom in order to finally get help? I think that was certainly a theme. But I think on a positive note, for those, even the ones who lost loved ones, the positive theme was about this campaign, but also the work of the coalitions that are in communities across the state and the work that they are doing at the local level. So I could not possibly finish or talk through this podcast without mentioning those drug coalitions that are there in the community. They know their neighbors. They know how to get them help. They know where to do Narcan training. They are, that was, a, that was something that was mentioned by almost every single individual that I spoke to that even for the ones for the parents or the family member that lost a loved one said that they wish that they had had the training because they may have been able to help. But now seeing how much Narcan training is being amplified and how you can get it through any of these coalitions now, they are proud and they are happy that that is happening. So we've got to continue that work. 
And just for, for all those listening who are in Tennessee, every county has overdose prevention specialists that you can reach out to and they will provide Narcan and they will come to your organization and do overdose prevention training. And they're just a great resource that we all should should take advantage of out there. Absolutely. They're, wonder, they're wonderful, wonderful people. And I know several of them very, very well. Absolutely. We we touched on this briefly or already, but I think it's so important that it, it's good to circle back. Why is it so important to hear stories from those directly affected? And that this is true for this this issue, but every issue. Why do we need to hear from those who who are living it? Because that's their lived experience, right? I have not lived a life of addiction. And though I have studied it and I have researched it, I've developed an incredible campaign, no matter how much work I do, that is not my lived experience. We can't make change. We can't do better as a community if we don't listen to those with the lived experience, right? As you mentioned, we it, that goes across so many other subject areas, right? Asthma diabetes, pregnancy, right? Maternal mortality. We know that that is a conversation that's being had as well right now. We can't make change. We can't understand or better understand the plight of those individuals if we do not hear directly from them. And if not far from them in the, the cases of those who have lost loved ones due to the opioid crisis. Their family members, their friends can help their memory live on and describe what they went through so that we make sure that we are hearing that, we are amplifying that, and that we remember those individuals as we are doing this work. The stories that I heard on this journey of the Face of Opioids campaign will always have a very special place in my heart because it changed my life. It helped me to better understand their lived experiences. It opened my eyes and certainly opened my heart even more. And if I'm just one person and I can only do so much, right? <laughs> but if I can tell that story to 10 other people and those 10 people then go out and do it to 10 other people, imagine the great work that could happen not only here in this state of Tennessee, but across this country and across the globe. We have to continue telling these stories. We have to listen to folks and those lived experiences. They know. They know the journey, no matter how ugly it may be, and no matter how hard it might be for someone else to hear it. We have to listen to them. Take note and find a way to, to bring about change. Well, thank you again for your time today, for your important work, for getting these stories out there. It is critical to making change and bringing about the, the world that we wanna see. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. 
you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.